And all the brothers said amen. amen. Christ be magnified. Amen. I, um, over breakfast, I was sitting with a brother, and after we ate, he asked me, I think it was David, I think, and he asked me if I knew where the word love was first mentioned in the Bible, and I wasn't sure. And he told me it was in the very passage we looked at last night in Genesis chapter 22, when God says to Abraham that take your only son whom you love. And I was profound that God pursued us as sinners, made a promise that he would undo the curse through the seed of Abraham. God gives him a seed, and then God gives Abraham a test. Abraham didn't know it was a test. God gives Abraham a test to take the son, for the father to take the son that he loved and offer him. And the conflict for Abraham, is this how you're going to bless all the families on earth? By father giving his beloved son? And then God tells him to stop and tells him, I will provide the lamb. And then David told me in the New Testament, when the father speaks from heaven about his son, he says, this is my beloved son. And then he gives him to us on the cross to take away the curse, to take away sin, to take away death, so that we would have hope and eternal life. Hallelujah. This weekend, I want to talk about love. And I want to stay under the theme that it is the most essential quality for good leaders. And I wanted to ask a couple of basic questions about love. Last night, I wanted to ask the question, men, why do we have to love? And the Bible tells us, it says in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his son, his only son, into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. Why do we have to love? Because God has loved us so deep, so wide, so amazing, so sacrificially, so undeserving. God loved us, and now he calls us to love one another. Isn't that the great commandment? When Jesus was asked by the lawyer, what is the great commandment in all the law? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Love God with everything you have. It's not enough to love God for yourself's sake. We have to love God for his sake. We have to love God for who he is with everything that we have. And I'm glad Jesus didn't just stop there. He said, this is the greatest and most important commandment. The question was, what's the most important commandment? This is the weightiest of everything you're called to do in your life. But Jesus doesn't just stop there. He says it is the priority every single day in your life. So it's April 15th. Your taxes aren't done. The priority is what, brothers? You got to get them taxes in. That might be the priority, getting the taxes done for a civil government, 
But for the holy God, the priority every day is getting your relationship with him deeper, closer to love God. That is the priority and is the weightiest thing that we do every single day. It's not what you accomplish on your job. Students, it's not if you get a 4.0 GPA. It's not if your sports team wins this weekend or Saturday or not. The most important and weightiest thing that we have to do every single day is to love and enjoy God. Amen. It's to be like Enoch. It's just to walk with God. Jesus shed his blood so we be in this love relationship with God. And he wants it to spill over. So the second commandment is like the first. Love your neighbor. We have to love because God loved us. But I'm afraid that this is not a newsflash, that we aren't doing very well at loving. This past couple years have been really hard on Christians. If you listen to how we talk to each other, if you look at us on social media, it's like the bride of Christ is having an open brawl in a wedding gown for the whole public, for the whole world to see. Lobbing bombs at one another. And I'm afraid what Jesus warned of the church of Ephesus might be becoming true of us. When Jesus said of the church of Ephesus, they were orthodox in their doctrine. They were working really hard. They hated false teachers. But Jesus said in Revelation 2.4, but I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Is that happening to the American church? Is it happening in our churches? In the book of Corinth, Paul says it was happening there. In so many words, he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, that he had received a letter because the church was so troubled. They wrote a letter to Paul, and in the letter, they, the letter says this, that there were divisions, there were rivalry within the church. Some were saying, I'm of Paul, and others were saying, I'm of Apollos, and Others were saying, I'm of Cephas, and others were saying, I belong to Christ. And Paul says, is Christ divided? Did Jesus die for a divided bride? Did he not choose people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every land? Didn't he choose us, eclectically different as we are, so that we're not united because we look alike? We aren't united because we share the same culture. We aren't united because we share the same politics. We aren't united because we share the same nation. We're united because of the blood of Christ. And by his blood, he makes all of those other differences secondary. We don't just unite because we all live in the same neighborhood, have the same background. Jesus' blood broke the dividing wall. And united even enemies of Jews and Gentiles. Has it not united every single person in this room? Regardless of your educational differences. Regardless of the job differences you have. Regardless if you live on the west or the east side of the community. That he's united us by means of his blood. But generationally there are broad divisions in the church today. Politically there are broad differences. Ethnically, culturally. And Paul addresses that in the book of 1 Corinthians, right in a chapter that deals with some of their most deep divides over the use of spiritual gifts. In chapter 12 and in chapter 14, right smack in the middle of that is a chapter about love. How about that? How about that? 
And Paul says, in dealing with all of our differences, I'm of Paul and I'm of Cephas and all these schisms and all these divisions. Paul said, let me show you the most excellent way to move forward as a unified body of Christ. And he said, that way is love. And last night we heard how we have to love brothers. We've got to figure that one out. But then the question I want to answer this morning is, well, what is love then? That's the most important command before God and what we have to do before each other. What then is love? Can I tell you, you're not going to find it in a Webster's Dictionary. That what we've done with the word love through Hollywood, we've made it all of our feelings and all of our romance. And, and the word in the Bible has, it can, it can be defined more differently. When you, when you look at the Bible, what it says about love, and it, and it tells us in this chapter really comprehensively, and I want us to look at it, it describes it in 15 different parts. I have a 15-part definition of love, and I want to look at all of the parts with you this morning. And the interesting thing about it to me, when, I, when we look at these words about love, they sound like they're descriptive words or adjectives when we read them in 1 Corinthians. And let me read it for you. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and I'm going to go from verse 1 through 8. If I speak of, if I speak Human or angelic tongues, and do not have love. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so I can move mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give away all my possessions and if I give over my body in order to boast but do not have love, I am nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love simply never ever fails. That's 1 Corinthians, and that's the definitions. But these aren't adjectives as Paul writes them, nor is the word love. He's describing it as an action word. All these in the original language are, are verbs. They're, they're actions. Love isn't something simply we feel. It's something we have to do. And so Paul describes it here, first of all, that love, he says in verse 4, is patient. That love, I'll say it this way, love just hangs on. <laughs> love hangs on and hangs in there. And he's talking about not with circumstances. He's talking about with people. That love hangs in there with people. When they disagree with you, when they attack you, when they say stuff you don't like, love hangs in there. When you fail, Jesus did not cancel you. <laughs> He didn't cancel Abraham, not the first time he lied, not the second time he lied, not the third time. It simply hangs on. Well, we've been canceling each other left and right on social media this, social media that, because they don't agree with me. I'm a Paul and they're of Cephas, so you get canceled. That's not love, brothers. And if you can't say amen, my friend Bodie says you can say ouch. That, that, that love simply hangs in there. It suffers along. It forbears. That's what love does. Love acts in patience. It hangs on. 
and we need that. It says in the book of Proverbs, chapter 16, 32, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. Because this kind of love, it just doesn't look masculine. Someone's wronged you, and we get all these macho vigilante movies, right? And I love vigilante movies, you know, from Rocky's, I mean, Sylvester Stallone's First Blood, and from on and on his Rambo movies. If someone wrongs you or whatever, then you just take it into your own hands and, and you exact justice. And, and in here, the text is saying, we who walk in love, we respond patiently when wronged. Not vengeful, not unforgiving. We just act, act like our Lord. We turn the other cheek. It was on the cross that said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So that's, that's what love is. And then love is kind. Love is kind in this sense that is, is goodness in action. That love overcomes evil because it's goodness in action. It, it's acting in a way that God acted towards us. It says in Romans 2.4, it is the kindness of God that led to repentance. Uh, it's a story that a dad tells and, uh, that I know and his, his, his daughter had, had this besetting sin, and it was over and over and over again. The dad was so frustrated, and here we go through the cycle again. And she's a teenager, and finally the dad was about to lose it. The daughter comes home. He sends her to the room, and he's walking into the room, and he's about to let her have it. And before he could open up his mouth and just tear into her, you this and you that, and I can't believe that you did this again. How could you? How dare you? And all those things that come out of our mouths. Before he could say any of that, the daughter broke and said, Dad, what's wrong with me? Why do I keep doing this? I need God's grace and God's love. She needed Jesus. And that's what God calls us to offer. Love is kind. Can I tell you that that's what God, our Father, is like, that he's kind? L look with me in Luke's gospel, chapter 6. So when we think of the Father, sometimes we'll portray what we think about our Father back onto the Heavenly Father. And that's the exact opposite, that God isn't defined by what earthly fathers are like. Earthly fathers are called to be the kind of father that God is. We're to submit to the way he is, and represent him before the world. And the, and the Bible tells us of God the Father. It says this, of his kindness, even with his enemies. It says, but I, verse 27, but I say to you who listen, love your enemies. Do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And if anyone hits you in the cheek, you simply turn the other cheek. And it says in verse 35, but love your enemies, do what is good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, for he is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. And that's so un-American. Our culture, just look at the news Look at Fox News and look at how angry they want to make us. Look at CNN. Look at how angry they want to make us. That, that they're not trying to reconcile. They're not trying to unify. 
They're throwing red meat to their base. The left throws red meat to their base, and the right throws red meat to their base. And you listen to them, and you come out all angry and fired up, and you, and you want to attack people on the other side. And the text is saying, be kind. God is kind. Even to his enemies, he brings rain and food and provides for those who hate him. And yet our American culture is telling us to be the kind of men... <laughs> Just the opposite of the kind of men that Christ died to make us to be. That we're to be kind because the Heavenly Father is kind. Can I ask you a question? Let's just be honest. Go home today. If you were to go home today or call your wife, text your wife and say, what kind of man am I? What adjectives or what words would she use to describe you? Ask your kids. If you're single, ask your church. Will your church say that he's loving? Will your family say that he's loving? Will your children, will your friends? And I think they would to some degree. I think we want to be leaders. We want to be effective fathers and we want to be godly husbands and we want to make an impact in our church and, and we want to make an impact in our community. We, we want to leave a legacy for our kids. We want to be a light on our jobs. And the text is saying, this is how to do that. Be kinder. <laughs> be more patient. Be more loving. Be more like your father who's in heaven, who died. So that we don't have to be snarky, sarcastic, rude, demeaning, arrogant, and attack people who have different positions than we are. We just they can be bridge builders. Jesus came to bring all these eclectic people together from all these backgrounds. And he brought us together to make us a family. How about that? A family. And he did it through his love. And so the Bible says, what is love? Well, love is kind, it, it, is, is patience in action, it hangs on. And then thirdly, it says love is not jealous, it's not envious, it's, it's, it doesn't function out of uh, dissatisfaction and envy, and that, that's almost inescapable for your kids today. And for us, I guess, if you live on social media, and, and I don't know what's going on with our kids today. I'm so burdened. My wife teaches in high school, and I, I, when I was a kid, I mean, there was a place, it was, it was, and I lived in it. It was paradise. And you know where the place was? Outside. I mean, just go outside. This is the happiest place in the world. I have to spend hundreds of dollars to go to Disneyland. I just go outside. And my, my whole life, childhood, and we were poor, and I didn't even know we were poor. I just, I just had fun. And, 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 and my biggest burden and worry was, how can, how can I have more fun today? And we're going to play basketball. We're going to play baseball. What are we going to do to have fun? But kids today are having anxiety attacks. They, 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 they literally, my wife's high school, they, she'll find kids that'll be in bathrooms and they'll be having anxiety attacks and they, they take prescriptive medicines to deal with their anxiety. You have an anxiety, you're 14 years old, you, are you paying bills? Where's anxiety coming from? <laughs> Life doesn't get easier than it is now. But something, something social media is doing, brothers. Our kids look and they see everybody's happy and everybody gets what they want and everybody. And, and, and it just makes them look at their glass half empty all the time. Well, I don't have that, and I don't have this, and I don't have that. Something must be wrong with me. And, brothers, we've got to really shepherd our families through this season. That there is even, there's even a term for it now, fear of missing out. 
and, and, and psychologists look at it, and it's not unique to just our kids. Read Psalm 37. Read Psalm 73 with Asaph. That all of us could struggle with looking at what other people have and feel like somehow God has left me out. Can I tell you this, brothers? If God doesn't give you anything else, no promotion, no new car, if he gave you his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, he has given you infinitely enough. Yeah. And so we've got to look at the cross and not our circumstances because you're going to hit lows. You're going to not get the promotion. Somebody's going to move in and it's going to look like they have everything. The grass is even greener. And I always tell folks that the grass looks green on the other side. It might be artificial turf. Be careful. <laughs> but we can live out of jealousy. But, but love doesn't do that. It, 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 it doesn't, it does, it's not motivated by jealousy. It, it can rejoice when the other person gets a promotion. You're praying for a revival at your church. You're praying for a revival. And one breaks out down the street. Are you happy? <laughs> you pray for revival. <laughs> and so here it is. We, we, we really have to deal with this because God wants us to love better. And he tells us what it is. It's not our feelings. It's our actions. And we act kindly. Uh, we can act patiently. And then we don't have to act out of envy and jealousy and dissatisfaction. There's a secret to contentment that Paul said in Philippians chapter 4. And the secret is like not thinking that what you get makes you content. But recognizing what you have is a gift from God, that what I have is from God. And everybody has an obstacle course. Just because that person beside you is not going through a trial right now, it doesn't mean that somehow God has shorted you in your life. He's designed this perfect obstacle course for all of us, and he knows exactly what you need to be made more like Christ. That's why you're in this trial, brothers. That's why you have your kids. That's why you have your wife. That's why you have singleness. That's why God is sovereignly wanting to work in our lives, not to give us what other people have, but to teach us that he is leading and guiding us, making us more like Christ by what he provides for us. So love is not jealous. Love doesn't brag. It's what sin did in the garden, it took our satisfaction, our natural satisfaction from God. Everything we would have had, we would have delighted as a gift from God. The greatest gift that God offers isn't anything in creation. It is the creator himself. But what sin did in Adam when he was separated from God and he turned to self, now what sin is, we're self-centered sinners. Now we think we can only find satisfaction when we get what we want. And, and so we pursue life all about us. And here says the person who is bragging lives life always in ex excess talking and thinking about themselves. The self-applause, um, when our praise should come from someone else's lips, it says in Proverbs, and, and never our own. Uh, I, I have one, one of my mentor pastors told me a really embarrassing story that when his daughter was really, really young in elementary school, in a little Christian school setting, I think it was a homeschool Christian school setting, and, uh, and the teacher was asking, uh, teacher trying to teach about forgiveness and asking all the kids about, uh, so at home, um, do you, do, you, do you experience forgiveness? Do your parents ask you for forgiveness? And all the kids are like, no, no, no. My, my, my daddy never, he never asked me for forgiveness. My daddy does, my daddy doesn't. And then one of those kids are like, oh, yeah, my daddy sins all the time. And it was the pastor's kid. <laughs> oh, my dad sins, he sins all the time. You know why? You want to know why she said? 
Because he's always asking me for forgiveness. He's always asking me for forgiveness. We, we can't live with a facade of self-righteousness and we want everybody to see that we're this and we're that when we're just like Abraham, struggling along a journey and God is teaching us how to trust him more. So we don't brag. We, we know it's all by grace. It's all by mercy. God has taught us that. And love is not arrogant. It's not puffed up. Similar idea. Instead of instead, not just talking about ourselves, we don't have an overinflated opinion of ourselves. That's the idea. Self-admiration. And that's the greatest sin of Satan, to be prideful, to be much more like Satan than it is to be like Christ. And Philippians 2, Christ could not have gone lower. Here is the son of God, and he condescends and becomes a man. Not just a man. That wasn't low enough. But to become a servant, that wasn't low enough. To become a man who dies, that wasn't low enough. To die on a cruel Roman cross where they wouldn't even crucify Roman citizens. And here the son of God. Exalted one over everything, humbled himself that way. And then it tells us to have that mind, the mind of Christ where we can be overlooked and we can be a set aside or whatever. And we can just, we can gladly serve God in a second position, not the primary position, because love isn't puffed up. It's not arrogant. It doesn't have an overflated view of ourselves. We consider everything we do as a privilege. We haven't earned anything from God. We just get showered with his grace. Muhammad Ali was on a plane, they say, and the stewardess came by and said, Mr. Ali, you have to buckle up. And he looked at the stewardess and said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And then she said, well, Mr. Ali, in all due respect, Superman don't need no plane either. (laughs) So we just have to be really careful about how we think about ourselves. It's easy to have a puffed up, overinflated view of ourselves. And, and that happens in the church. Diatrophies is like that. There are people in our churches who want to be first, and they want to be recognized, and they want their name called, and they want to. Jesus said, don't be like that. Don't get offended if you did all the stuff in the past for the church picnic, and the pastor doesn't mention your name. Don't sit there anticipating that. Oh, they're going to recognize me this Sunday because I did all that. Did Jesus see it? Has <laughs> Jesus shortchanged you? Is he going to reward you? Are we going to go through a judgment where our, our, our good works will be like gold and silver passing through the fire? Are we going to get eternal rewards? Then don't, don't, don't get frustrated. If you aren't recognized in your local church by your local pastor, if Jesus sees you. Don't have an overinflated view of ourselves. And, we, and I'm saying this, brothers, because I know we want to be better husbands. I know we want to be better leaders. Love is simply the way. And this is what it is. It's simply not puffed up. And then it says, love doesn't act rudely or inappropriately. That, that's, that's love. It, it, it doesn't do shameful things. It, it doesn't step outside of the, uh, it doesn't defy social and, and the moral standards that are acceptable, that are decent, that, 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 that aren't shameful. It, it doesn't do that. And so can I ask the question then? Can the brother beside you take your phone right now and just flip through your history? Can you just go through it? Is there anything that you'd be shamed about? If he goes through on your, on your laptop, if we posted everything you have on social media on the screen behind us, would you be ashamed? Then, then, then deal with those things. The grace that saves sanctifies. It says the grace that God has given us would teach us how to deny ungodliness. 
And we're not perfect. And so when you sin and you fall, what do you do? Don't let your accountability brother have to ask you the exact specific question or else you won't say anything. You call a brother and you say, there's a, a brother who called me. And I have deep respect for him. He's a, he's a leader. He's a pastor. And he called me. He, says, he said, please pray for me. I have to get away from my computer today. My respect for him didn't diminish. <laughs> it increased. Brothers, that we've got to take this great love that God has given for us and know that this conflict that rages in our heart that, that, that wants to justify a little bit of sin, a little bit of compromise, that is from the devil. There's two ways that I can get off of the stage. Satan can get me just jump to the bottom of a cliff or I could go a step at a time. Either way, I get to the same spot. These small compromises, they, 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 they affect your testimony. They affect my ability to have an impact on other people. And so here the text is, love is not arrogant, it's not rude. And I, I just don't like what I'm seeing about us sometimes on social media. I don't like how people post things. I don't like the pictures that get posted sometimes. I don't like what we say. Um, and, there's, and, 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 and in the context of the church, that here we're the, the holy one. We're set apart. We're holy. Well, we're set apart from the world. And, and, and we have to really live that way before, not, not, not legalistically, but we have to be different. If the world is Pepsi, why, why, do, we, why do we just want to be Diet Pepsi? Why not be orange juice? That, that we don't have to follow all the standards in the world. Um, and this is just, I don't even know how this directly applies. Let me just tell you the story anyway. Um, I was a young pastor, and I was asked to be a part of this pastor's ordination. And, um, and so it was Saturday morning. It wasn't a public ordination. I forgot what part of his ordination I was doing. There's a Bible guy, theology guy, practical theology guy. And so it's Saturday morning. I show up. I probably look something like this. And I walked in the room, and he had on a coat and tie. All the examiners had on coat and ties, and I was, like, humiliated. I just felt like, I mean, I, didn't, I had no idea what the cultural standard was in the norm. Uh, so here it is. I, I, and, I, and I took the moderator aside and says, I had no intention of just violating whatever this cultural standard thing is. And I just felt ashamed. I, I was really humiliated. And... Um, and so, and then, then I, I had to be on the panel, so I walk up for the panel. And guess what? I walk up for the panel, and the moderator, you know what the moderator did? He went back and took his jacket off, took his tie off. I almost cried. Love is like that. He recognized that I was feeling shame because I didn't conform to some, some cultural standard. And so he came down to where I was. Love is an action word, brothers. It's not passive. It's not how we feel. It's not an emotion. It's what we do. And men are hardwired. We're hardwired to serve and to sacrifice for our king. He died and made your new creation. That's who I am. It's in here by God's grace. And this text tells us how to bring it out to love, and it doesn't seek its own. That's the text. Love doesn't seek its own either. Um, and it's not fixated on us. I, I, Martin Luther King, I think he did, he did a lot of things wrong, but he said this right, and this is helpful. Um, he looked at the story of the Good Samaritan, and looking at the story of the Good Samaritan, he, 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 he dug into why did the priest and the Levite, and they all walk on the other side of the road. Because they're looking at this man who was beaten, who was robbed, who was dying. And they're looking at him and they're asking, what will happen to me if I stop? 
And the question is, maybe the robbers are still around the corner. Maybe something happened to me. But, but, but the Good Samaritan stopped because he asked a different question. He didn't ask the question, what will happen to me if I stop? He asked the question, what will happen to this dying man if I don't stop? So, so love isn't seeking his own. Love is thinking about what happens to other people if I don't do what God has called me to do in this moment. If I don't sacrifice, if I'm not courageous, if I'm not selfless, what will happen? And, and, and the Bible is clear that even Christ didn't come to please himself. He came to serve, not to be served, and to give his life a ransom for many. And eighth, love is not provoked. And as some translations are easily provoked. The word easily is not there. It's just not provoked. Love is not provoked. It just won't. It, if you're loving, it won't turn into anger. It's like if I knock over a glass of milk, water won't come out. Why? Because milk is in the glass. And if love is in your heart and it gets knocked over, anger and hatred do doesn't come out of it. Now, you can be angry and sin not. The Bible says that. Uh, if it's a righteous anger, if you're angry because God's name is offended or God is offended or his name is blasphemed, but most of our anger is about us. And, and, it, and, and that's why it moves so easily to sin. That's why we can't let the sun go down on it. And, and, and here in this text is that love is not provoked like that. That when we are pushed and challenged in, in a tempting situation to be angry, that there are other things in our toolbox as leaders that you have to grab for. When someone wrongs you, they cut you off on the freeway, then you can, you can make other decisions other than to let them know, like, do you know who I am? You just cut me off. You, you, you just ruined two seconds of my life. That's all you lose probably is two seconds. That, that, that you can honk the horn, ride on the bumper. You can do all that stuff. Or you can just say, hey, maybe the guy is rushing his wife to the hospital. Maybe you can empathize. Maybe you can be patient. Maybe he's late for a job interview. You can pull out patience. You can pull out understanding. You can pull out empathy. I've done that before. Or it's all kinds of things you can pull out other than anger. But the temptation is um, when we feel wronged and slighted, the temptation is to pull out anger. But just know that it's not this raging emotion that you can't control. It's a choice that you want them to feel what you felt when they cut you off, when you could have exercised least the perspective I'm willing to forgive. Uh, and that's a hard one for his brothers. And somebody can say amen to that, right? That's a hard one that we just, well, we can get provoked. And it affects, it affects our ability to witness. There was a professor and a pastor at a restaurant, and the wait just knocked over the glass of water on the pastor. And he tore into her. He got so mad, he's just tearing into, ripping into the secretary for getting water. It wasn't juice, it was water on his suit. He was so mad. And then as the, 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 the shame now waitress walks away, <laughs> the professor looks at the pastor and said, um, when she comes back, let's tell her about the love of Christ. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, this, this and, I, and I've worked on this one in my own life, and uh, so easily provoked, and God gives me grace, and I'm growing, and uh, but this Monday, I just tore into one of my kids. Uh, that was ugly. My wife tried to stop me, and I just wouldn't stop. She, uh, she, she, she's, she, she has to commute to school. She lost her car that I gave her. She didn't put oil in it, cracked the engine head, so she used her sister's motorcycle. And I hate her riding the motorcycle, but I can't get her another car. So anyway, so I, she rides the motorcycle, and then... 
three weeks ago, she got in a motorcycle accident. That's the last thing you want to hear as a dad. Like, like you get a call, and they're in a motorcycle accident. You race to the scene. She's on the gurney, crowd around and all that. And I'm just looking. There's a, is everything still there? You know, and she was, by God's grace, uh, just road, road rash. Just got scraped up, and she was fine. And so she came in Monday and said, well, Dad, I, I, I have to start riding a motorcycle to go back to school again. I'm like, no, no, we're not doing that again. Like, Dad, you don't understand. No, I don't, whatever I understand means, I do, you, you know, do you understand me? I said, you're not riding the motorcycle anymore. And it just went from there and it started going. And my wife said, Bobby, Bobby. And, and it's trying to stop me. And, and, and sometimes when I get like that, she said, Bobby, you're too loud. The neighbors can hear you. I'm like, I don't care if the neighbors can hear me. I was in one of those raise modes. And oh, my poor baby. And I just torn her. I like, this is just stupid. And she was so upset. She said, I, I just have to leave that. So she went in the room and closed the door. I couldn't sleep that night. I felt so ashamed that here it is. God gave me to protect my daughter, right? And so if I don't want her to ride the motorcycle, then I have to show her faith that God was going to provide another ram, right? Then I just read that text to y'all last night that God provided. So then the here it is. Where's your faith in Pastor Bobby? <laughs> you're telling her to trust God and you're raging and yelling at her. Men, when we fail like this, that don't just move on. We have to go back and first ask God for forgiveness and ask God to deal with our own hearts so we can love better. And then humbly go before our kids, our coworkers, our church members, or whoever it is. Because this isn't love. It's not love when we do this. And anger doesn't achieve the righteousness of God. That's what James says. It just doesn't. Learn as a leader to pull something else out of your toolbox. Uh, you can't fix everything with a hammer. You're shatter glass. And so sometimes we pull our anger as if that's going to resolve the situation. When here it says love simply is not provoked. And then next, number nine, love does not keep count a wronged sufferer. It doesn't do that. Um, and that's a hard one, too. It just has, we have this calculator in our mind. <laughs> when people sin against us, it just adds it up and adds it up and adds it up and adds it up until they kind of get to a limit. Can I tell you the truth? That no one has ever sinned against you the way you've sinned against God. No one has. No one ever has. So you don't have to keep a list. If God forgave you, of the 70 times 7, <laughs> and multiply that by a million, if God has forgiven us for all the times that we've sinned against him, then, then we, can, we can forgive others. Love simply covers a multitude of sins. It does. So in our homes, in our churches, do people have to walk around on eggshells around us? You know, I, when I come home and my wife is trying to fill me out, like, uh, either he's hungry or he's really tired, but he's really mean today. <laughs> And that, we got to deal with that, man. That the way that God has made a way for us, and he's made a way for us to have an impact as leaders, is by loving. It's simply by loving, and love simply doesn't keep count of wrong suffered. It doesn't do that. Anger is never without a reason, Benjamin Franklin said, but seldom with a good one. And so sometimes we have to go back and press into our own hearts. Why am I getting so angry at this? Anytime you're willing to sin to get something, you've made that something an idol. Even if it's respect from your kids. Boy, you're going to respect me. 
if anybody else looks at you, are they going to respect you in that rage mode? That sometimes we can take good things and idolize them. And once we made them an idol in our own hearts, we sin to get them. And so we just have to really just, by God's grace, pull out 1 Corinthians 13. It says, Lord, make me a leader like this. Make me a leader who loves well. Make me a leader who's not provoked. Make me a leader. It says, verse 6, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. It doesn't. The Bible says in Psalm 119, 104, and I love this, for from your precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. That love hates unrighteousness. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. But I wonder sometimes, if I were to read Ephesians 5 to you, and and as I read Ephesians 5, and just keep in mind, what do I rejoice in? I can say it another way. What do I entertain myself with? Can it pass the Ephesians 5 test? Do I entertain myself with things that are unrighteous? It it, it says in Ephesians chapter 5, but sexual immorality and any impurity and greed should not even be heard among you as is proper for saints. Obscene and foolish talk or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. And it says we should expose the deeds of darkness. We can't rejoice in deeds of darkness. But I wonder what our entertainment is doing for us. Can it pass the Ephesians 5 test? Are we rejoicing in stuff that Christ died to condemn? And then it says, but love rejoices with the truth. It rejoices with the truth. And here is the picture in, uh, I think it's the second John, third John, where he rejoiced that his his, his children were walking in the truth. It's not simply just hearing and understanding and affirming. That's what we think of truth in the West. But it's doing that we rejoice when we see people taking baby steps. Baby steps. They're not where they need to be. They're not, but they're not where they, where they were. And so you rejoice in that. That you can be in a church and, 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 it's, and, and, and people are not as mature as you are. And you're good with that. You love them to the next step, and you love them to the next step, and you come rejoicing with all these less mature believers all around you, and you, by God's grace, can encourage them to take one more step, one more step. So when our kids are learning how to walk, and they take a step, and they fall, what do you say? I'll look at you again. No, you say, great! (laughs) You rejoice, you cheer, and you encourage that they took a step. So when so that guy, your disciple, he calls back the tenth time, overcome by his besetting sin. What do you do? Are you thankful that he called, that he didn't just give up? Are you thankful that he still stays in the struggle? Or do you, like, come down really hard on him? The Bible says this in 1 John, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the one who's confessing. It says God is dependable. God is reliable. You can depend upon him. You can extend mercy and grace when people come to you confessing. And so we can rejoice with people as they take these baby steps along the way. And then it says love bears all things. Love bears all things. And here's the word literally comes from almost like a roof. It, it shields and protects. That's what love does. Protects from the sun and the, the rain and the wind. It's bear, it bears up under all things. So do you use your strength for that? That is a safe place, that your leadership provides a safe place because of how you love. And then it says love believes all things. It's not gullible. 
it's not gullible, but boy, it's, it's just so crazy uh, optimistic. <laughs> but that love just believes all things. It, it, it wants the best. And so love believes it's your, it's your son who, who strikes out every single time he comes up the bat. And so you've been working with him on the swing, working with him on the swing. And you're like believing, like, you can do it this time, son. And then, or when he walks up the bat, you're like, oh, no, he's going to embarrass me in my own. <laughs> uh, love believes all things. It's so optimistic. It's so encouraging to be around optimistic leaders. They inspire you not to give up. They keep trying. You fail and you keep trying. And, and you know you're going to go back to this leader. You're going to get encouragement because that's what love does. That love does that. And then lastly, lo- love hopes all things. It's so confident. Love is just confident. Uh, it, it trusts in the transforming power of God's grace. That leaders who are leading by God's grace, we don't lead by guilt. We don't keep throwing past failures at people and past failures at people. It's hoping that this time it'll be different. So grace is looking forward to what God is changing us to be because he who began a good work in you will what? He's going to finish it. So hope like you're going to make it. You tell your kids who trust in Jesus, you are going to make it. I had one of my kids and she was just going crazy. I I didn't know it. Uh, One of uh, another dads came and told me because his daughter told him, that she had been sneaking out of the house at night. And I'm like, oh, Lord Jesus. And so here we have these talks, and it was so hard. I mean, it was just, we were at this place, and I just told her, and God just gave me a gracious gospel moment. I said, honey, I'm simply not going to give up on our relationship. We're going to get through this season. And then God, by his grace, rescued her from that. And then I think it was... uh, a couple of months later, she made my wife an anonymous it's artwork. I don't even know what to call it. And it was a picture of a sailboat. And she said, Mom, you were like the sail underneath my wings that when I was drifting, I kept, God, by his grace, kept picking me up because I kept thinking about all the ways you've encouraged me. And then she made another picture, and it was an anchor. And she said, Dad, like when I kept wanting to go across the line, I couldn't. That God had used you like an anchor that was holding me in place. That God wants to use you, brothers. If he didn't want to, he, he, he wants to use you. That's what it means definitionally to be a man. To be a man, God made Adam first, and so there's unique responsibilities. And the way men lead is like this. If you want to lead, you have to initiate. That, that you have to be at home and say, okay, honey, let's work on this. You see the problems, and you don't turn on the TV in the game and zone out and let your wife try to handle it. You initiate. We need to talk to the kids. We need to work out this. We need to do this. And you're looking, and you're trying to subdue the garden and make it right again. So on the job and at the church, you see the problems, and you do it hopefully, confidently, that God's grace will work in this place and flourish. He made a beautiful creation. And he can make a new one in your church, in your home, through you. That's why he has you there. And finally, love endures all things. I love this because it makes, it completes the circle. He started off by talking about how love is patient with difficult people. And then it goes full circle and says love endures difficult circumstances. Uh, love is simply better. <laughs> It's just the best way to respond to all these things we have to deal with as leaders. It's simply the best way. But we have to grow. We, we can bear difficult circumstances by God's grace because he loved us. And 
And, 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 and when we do that, when we bear up under all things, it provides shade and shelter for those that God has entrusted to us to lead. Uh, let me say this, and I'll be done. Um, what happens if you're not this kind of leader? What happens if you don't do this? It sounds overwhelming. We all fail at all these things at various times and are characterized by some of them more consistently than we would want to be. But God's grace can change us. His word does that. His word is not like his God spoke and the universe came to, to existence. Second Corinthians chapter 13 verse 8 says that we become more incrementally like him from one level of glory to the next through his word. His word changes us. It can be conforming us right now so we don't have to stay where we were. So if there's an area that you're failing in, just call out to God. And, and, and by Abraham, like, or not, not like Adam, but listen, but with faith. But if we aren't like this, then this is what it says about us and our leadership. I will not be patient. I'm impatient. I will be unkind. I will be jealous. I'll brag. I'll be arrogant. I'll act unbecomingly. I will keep being self-seeking. I'll always be irritable. Uh, I'll keep an account of everybody's wrong. I'm going to keep rejoicing in unrighteousness. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to rejoice with the truth. I'm not going to bear anything. I'm not going to believe anything. I'm not going to hope anything. I'm not going to endure anything. And if that's what someone does, that's definitionally not a leader. And I know that's not us. So by God's grace, man, let's embrace this call to love. In chapter 16, I'll just say this and I'm going to sit down. In chapter 16, verse 14, the same book, Paul says, let all that you do be done with love. And if we do that by God's grace, then we'll be the kind of leaders that will make an impact with our wives and our homes and our churches. We'll be kind of leaders that leave a legacy. We'll be kind of leaders that you're hoping that you'll be. But the way you have to do that is by love. Amen. God bless you.